With more than 500 programs a year, there's never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org special to get special rates on membership. You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at InforumSF. Well, hello, everyone. I'm Lori Gottlieb. I am a psychotherapist, and I am the author of the book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, and I am also the co-host of the Dear Therapist podcast. Welcome to tonight's virtual program with InfoForum at the Commonwealth Club. I am so delighted to be here with Anna Sale, who, as you all know, is the host of the long-running and very popular WNYC podcast, Death, Sex, and Money. And I am so excited to chat tonight about her new book, which is called Let's Talk About Hard Things. Looks like this. So, Anna, hi. Hi, Lori. I'm so excited to talk with you. So good to see you. Um, I see that my book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, is in the background above your head. And it is called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. And your book is called Let's Talk About Hard Things. So I think there's some overlap in, yes. terms, of, in terms of our how we're aligned in our interests. And we have some commonality in terms of both being authors and podcasters. And we are both, uh, we both worked as journalists. And I think what that says about us is that we are people who are fascinated by stories and by what happens when we tell these stories and share these stories. Mm -hmm. And that's why I was absolutely riveted by your book. Um, the book, for people who haven't read it yet, and I know you're all going to get it, is part memoir, part reported stories, stories you haven't heard yet on the podcast. And as I was saying to Anna earlier, they're all stories that are in conversation with one another. And I think that you will see yourself in every single story in this book, even if it doesn't fit into your exact situation. I think that's mm -hmm. sort of the magic of telling these stories. And so... It's probably no surprise that as a therapist, I'm, I'm drawn to talking about hard things and I see the real value in it. And I wonder for you, Anna, how did you get interested in having these kinds of conversations? Did you grow up in a family where you had these kinds of open conversations or where did it start for you? I think it started, uh, it started in my family and I grew up in a family of, of five daughters. I'm one of five. Um, so there was a lot of talking and talking about feelings. And also I was the fourth of five. So a lot of kind of like passing down the acquired wisdom that the older sisters had sort of collected and, and would give it to us, the younger sisters. Um, and I think that that was, that made me like, really like to talk about this, but I'll talk about feelings, life. Um, but in a certain way, as a younger sibling, you sort of, I think I had this um, misconception that you could sort of line up just the right guides and expertise and navigate around any sort of trouble. <laughs> and um, that all kind of came crashing down for me for me, when I was turning 30, um, my first marriage was sort of falling apart and I didn't know why I couldn't stop it from falling apart, even though I worked really hard at it. Um, and so that sort of began this like different way for thinking about hard things as opposed to something to be solved and fixed and, um, looking for the sort of like epoxy that was going to make it all stick together. And instead, to just be sort of curious about hard stuff and then want to tell stories from other people about what happened when things in their life fell apart and how they got through and to share that more broadly. Because I certainly found when I was in a moment of my life, when all of a sudden the roadmap, I didn't, I didn't know which way to go next. Um, it was really terrifying and I needed company in that. Um, and so that's what, that became sort of my journalistic interest is how to make more stories about those kind of moments. 
Well, it's interesting because that is sort of the genesis of death, sex, and money. Um, but before that, you were a political reporter. Yeah. And even then, you were asking very personal questions in an arena where people didn't generally do that. You know, you would ask people like, well, tell me about your marriage or tell me about your parents or tell me about your children. What what gave you the instinct to know that those would be those were important parts of the story? Well, I think covering politics, I became really sort of allergic to the performance around a lot of um kind of like, you know, any campaign will tell you that like the narrative of the family history and the family story and how they met and who their kids are, you know, that that's all such a thing that they try to sell their candidates based on. Um, but it's all very sort of manicured and just so, you know, um, and even not covering campaigns, just covering like political issues. There's so many words that can that, that politicians use or lobbyists use where you're like, you're using this euphemism for a thing that's like, you're not saying the thing, you know? So I really kind of became interested in like, okay, my job for my listeners, I was covering politics for public radio newsrooms, is to say the thing and tell people what's really going on. Like that is how I understood my job. It's for everybody else who's going about their daily lives. If I'm at the state house covering what happened that day, I'm going to say, here's what actually happened and why it matters, and and not just parrot what the politicians, how they would spin it. Um, and so I think when I applied that kind of skill set to then personal storytelling, um, I, I wasn't, af I, I, you know, kind of afraid to like, sort of say in a directness, like, we're talking about something painful, or we're talking about something sad. Um, and that kind of informed my interview style, um, even when talking about very personal things. But I, I will say when you are out covering a, an election campaign and you are talking to voters, all they want to tell you about is their personal business, because that is what is motivating them, whether they feel anxious about how things are going, whether they feel hopeful. And that is related to very personal things going on in their lives. Right. When you were doing that, though, I think the difference between that and the beginning, at least, of death, sex, and money is that you were asking them personal questions about themselves. Um, but when you started death, sex, and money, you were at kind of a crisis point in your own life. <laughs> yes. And it almost felt like, I mean, I feel like the show has changed over the years. I feel like in the beginning, it was almost like you were asking for guidance, even yeah. though that wasn't really what the show was supposed to be. And that's why I think so many people were drawn to it because we all want guidance and we all want to hear the real stories. We want mm -hmm. to hear how did other people get through this or what happened when they were in this situation? Not because we would do the exact same thing, but because it helps us to think about it in a different way for what we might do in our own lives. Yeah. And I mean, so when I started the show, yeah, to be clear, the facts of my life were I had, I was divorced. I was like just kind of coming out of this questioning about, should I stay in journalism? Should I stay in New York City? I was dating this guy, this wildlife ecologist who was based in Wyoming. And like, what was that? What was the future of that? You know, I was kind of going through all of these big questions and then thinking, okay, I, if I do recommit and for a long-term relationship with Arthur, who is now my husband, spoiler, if I do recommit, you know, I found, I would ask couples early on, like, okay, do you have a joint bank account? Like, I just wanted to know well, the most mundane things because I just wanted to know, how do you do this? <laughs> well, I, I'm so glad you brought up money because I think of, so the book is divided into different sections. We've got death, sex, money, family, identity. And I think of all of those, the hardest one to talk about in our culture is money. And I mm -hmm. see that as a therapist. Like, people will talk to you about anything, but the minute money comes up, even in therapy where it's the safe space to talk about anything, people are really reluctant. And, and even, you know, not just generally talking about money, but then also specifically numbers. Yeah. You know, people will not, will not do that. Um, and so it's interesting because when I think about how you wrote in the book about your first marriage and how you had difficulty really having those hard conversations back then with each other. One of the things that seemed to be difficult for the two of you was this issue of money. And, and I, I say money, meaning what it represented in terms of what you both wanted 
for your futures, what kind of life you both wanted. And money was kind of a stand-in for something. So can you talk a little bit about how that played out in those conversations? Yeah. I mean, you very wisely said you weren't just arguing about your monthly budget. You were arguing about what money represented. And I, at the time, didn't get that. I was like, we're just, why are we arguing about whether we should go out to dinner tonight? Like we, it was just this constant sort of battle. Um, and it was because we had, we were sort of evolving into having really different visions for how we wanted our lives to evolve. You know, I, when I married my first husband, um, we were both living in West Virginia where we both grew up. He was a civil rights lawyer. I was just starting in public radio. And then he, he'd always sort of been a creative person and he decided he wanted to go to NYU film school, wanted to try to be a filmmaker. And we were married at the time. And I wanted, I was, you know, when your husband says, this is my dream, I, I was like, okay, this is your dream. We are going to do this all the while, all of my sort of like stability. I don't, what is, is this going to leave me behind? All these huge fears got activated And I had trouble talking about them because I didn't want to be unsupportive. Um, And so he did go to film school. He did get in. He did become a filmmaker. And while he was in film school, it just became, we didn't have the language for this until the very end, uh, which was, I don't want what you want anymore. Um, But before we got there, we battled about money. And so initially when our marriage was kind of falling apart, I thought like, are we, are we going to get divorced over money? That seems so lame and just cliche. And like, but yes, we got divorced because of money, but in the money you're standing in for like the biggest things, which are like money is how, what, what your comfort, you know, what you think you're building, your comfort with risk, like what you want to look your life to look like. I knew I was very clear. I wanted to have a house and a family. And he did not want that. Um, But we couldn't say that big thing to each other for a long time. So we just battled about money. Right. And I think that the reason that people don't have the hard conversations is because they might reveal something that you don't want to face. Like maybe the two of you were not right for each other, given what you both wanted. Yeah, Lori, that's the hardest. <laughs> like, I mean, well, that's I, what I love about, about, about you know, these conversations and, and why we need to have them is because people avoid the hard conversation thinking that that's going to keep them safe, but actually it just kind of kicks the can down the road yeah. until the thing explodes that they're not talking about. Yeah. And I think with money, you know, it's interesting because on your show, I've heard conversations about money between friends where you know, like some people have different amounts of money and people don't want to talk about that. And some people have student loans and some people don't. And some people have family money and some people don't. And, um, you know, in, in families, what do you do with siblings when you grew up in the same socioeconomic situation and then one sibling makes much more money later on in life mm-hmm. and one doesn't? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course, in marriages. And so when you went on to marry Arthur, mm-hmm. money came up again. Mm-hmm. Um, and you went to couples therapy. Mm-hmm. I love therapy. This is an ongoing <laughs> theme of the book. <laughs> I can, I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you would be sort of the ideal therapy client, I think. <laughs> I really try to be a good student. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but what was interesting about you and Arthur that I think was different from your first marriage, and again, you guys were younger in the first marriage and didn't have as much experience, was that you could talk to each other in relation to each other. So a lot mm-hmm. of couples, what they do is they talk to each other about something out there. Like They can be vulnerable with each other about their own families or their work or their friends or whatever it is, but to talk to each other about what's going on between the two of you. Mm-hmm. And it seems like Arthur was very evolved in that yeah. way, or at least that's how he comes across in the book. He is. I mean, it's, I don't, he's someone, I will just say, uh, he's, he's someone I, that has such a very clear gut and internal compass. I don't know that it's because he spent a lot of time out in nature. I mean, he is someone who has spent a lot of time by himself in nature, but he can hear what he feels and can put that to words very quickly. And I think of myself as kind of emo- pretty emotionally intelligent, but he can like do it way faster than me. <laughs> so then I'm like trying to keep up when we're, but he can hold and he's not conflict averse. 
which is also really um, has created a lot of space in our marriage and, and for me to learn how to fight and not be afraid of conflict in hard conversation that you're, if you just name what you're really kind of having conflict about, then you can sort of like unpack it a little bit more. So what were those conversations like when you did go to couples therapy and started talking about money and and how did it help to have those conversations? Was there anything concrete that came out of it? Yeah. I mean, I think what it was this wonderful therapist in upper Manhattan named Patricia Kumal. And she was, um, she was like, I want to just give you all some practical skills. We went when we were already married and um, we were contemplating a move to California from New York. I was pregnant. And Arthur was getting ready to take this job at UC Berkeley, where he now works. So a lot of life change coming at us. And because of my experience, I think in my first marriage of um, having a rupture, like I responded by like getting very attached to being in control of of my own money and being in control of um, then Arthur and I, we did share money, but I was, I'm like the eagle eye money person. Um, And I sort of assume Arthur's less sort of like, you know, doesn't check accounts as much as I, like I check them to make me feel better. You know, it's like a anxiety thing. And Arthur's sort of like, I have the rough idea. So in my mind, I sort of would interpret that as you're less responsible than me. Um, And so when we had sort of a difference about, um, you know, how much money we could think about for our housing budget. Like, what's the number? We had to come to that number together. Um, our our couples counselor was like, "Look, you you Anna clearly think that Arthur has like is is a little bit less responsible than you. So why don't you both do separate spreadsheets of what you think your budgets ought to look like?" Um, and it was really good advice because then Arthur and I on some, one Sunday, laptop sitting in our bed, his laptop on his laptop on his lap, and mine on my laptop. We, we both started saying like, oh, like, well, what are you, what's our electric bill now? And what's our, you know, just kind of building these spreadsheets um, and stuff like how much diapers does a baby use in a month? Like we didn't know, like we we're just trying to build this thing. And as we're building these parallel spreadsheets and I'm thinking like, oh, Arthur's going to be wildly sort of have a much looser idea of how much money we can spend. As we're building these two spreadsheets next to each other, I realize that is not so. Um, that he he would bring up things like, don't you think we should budget for when we're going to visit family on the East Coast since we're moving across the country? And I would be like, because it, it wouldn't occur to me to budget for such a thing, even though family is important to me. But it would it would go in the category of like ex, like extra spending that you don't put down on the spreadsheet. Um, so it, anyway, it helped us sort of like see that our different styles with money were complimentary. And then we ended up with this one budget, this one spreadsheet that we proudly presented to Patricia the next week and said like, okay, that was helpful because it helped me just sort of trust and see like, oh, if I let in what Arthur's instincts are around money, instead of kind of thinking that I need to keep him sort of away from my own control, um, it's better. It's a fuller vision. Right. One of the things that I think is great about your relationship with Arthur, because it sounds almost like a fairy tale romance, and yet you write about it so honestly that it wasn't so easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was thinking about the fact that you met him just a few weeks after I think you had separated from your first husband. And I, I don't know if anyone's ever really brought this up with you before, but I wonder. It's kind of like, you know, when somebody dies, someone's spouse dies and they start dating really quickly and people are like, really? So yeah. soon? <laughs> <laughs> what am I so afraid did, of? Yeah. Um, did, did anybody, did you get any of that? Like when you started dating him within weeks of, of ending your marriage? You know, I think like, I think I mostly got it from myself. Like, cause I was just like, what are you doing, Sale? This is ill-advised, you know, like you have a lot of stuff to just process. Um, and I did wonder, you know, we were, he was in Wyoming and I was in New York. So the way it functioned was I was sort of this like single divorcee living in an apartment by myself for the first time in my entire life and learning how to 
be quiet in my own house. Like I had never done that before as a, I was with my family growing up. I was in college and then I was with my first husband. Um, so I was kind of learning these very basic skills of living on one's own. And then I could call Arthur at the end of the night and have this like very, you know, in, intense, wonderful, emotional attachment with him. But I just, I, I, I battled with myself over like, is this, this is this a crutch, Anna? Like what's going on? So I didn't know, I didn't know if I could trust it, um, if I should trust it this connection that I felt with him. And then I could look at like, also, does this make any sense? Like this man studies large mammals in the mountain West. And you cover at the time I was covering politics in New York city, like in what way. And I had just had this marriage breakup because our directions, you know, went different, different ways. And so it took me a really long time to, um, sort of, uh, mostly just trust that I wasn't, um, what's, what's the word, the word for a breakup that you go right to a next thing. Um, rebound, rebound. rebound. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the really like, what am I doing? Like what? And, and also I was very attracted to Arthur. So I didn't trust. I was like, Ugh, this is like, <laughs> this is just like lustful desire for the mountain man who studies animals, you know? So, um, so what I write about in the book is I had this very long period, like years, where we were long distance. And um, and I would just say, like, I I don't, like, what are, we, really, what are we doing? Like, I don't know. I don't know. I can't see the long-term vision here. And and Arthur, was, to his credit, was, would say. Was he, at, was he asking, you know, like when you say you're wondering for all this time, what are we doing? Was he saying to you, what are we doing? No. Which mm. I, like he was more, he would say back to me, like, look, you just have to decide if you, like early on, he would say, you just have to decide if you want to call me tomorrow. Like, that's all. Like, no prep. Like, like, because it was very clear that I was, you know, I I told him when I met him, like, there's a lot happening here. Like, if you want it on this, it's fine. Um, But I, I did, you know, we both, and he was in transition too. He's finishing his PhD. He's like moving to a postdoc. He didn't know where he was going to end up. So I think he wasn't in the mode of being like, I know I'm going to be here and you're in or you're out. Like he was also in this transitional period. Um, and finally, you know, after after sort of he moved back east for this postdoc and and I started the sh- I, I hadn't started the show, but I'd started sort of thinking about what if I did this? What if this was my work? Like, that's interesting to me. Um, we sort of began to kind of like just trust, I began to trust that we could problem solve together, that actually being together with him was enabling me, like I was growing in ways and liked problem solving with him in a way that made my life better, that it was a relationship to sort of like make at the center instead of the facts of, you know, where are we going to live and that we could figure that out together. Yeah. Yeah. There was this real sense, I think, of the two of you being a team, even through this uncertainty. Yeah. Um, You know, when I listen to your show, one of the things that I think about a lot is so many of your listeners talk about loneliness. Mm -hmm. They talk about being single. They talk about, you know, the experience of not having someone. And you're someone who really never experienced that. You never really had that experience of like dating for a long time, trying to find the right person. You were sort of in a marriage, then quickly in another relationship. And I think about how maybe because you've been divorced, when you're interviewing people, they might feel like you really get them, even if their experience of divorce was different, that there's some sort of shared experience around divorce. Um, I know when I when I was starting as a therapist, um, I remember feeling like people who had older kids um, that, oh, I understand that, even though I didn't have an older kid yet, I had a baby. Mm-hmm. And then now that I have an older kid, I'm like, oh, I really get this in a different way. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and I was talking to the psychiatrist Irvialum recently, and, and he was saying he didn't really get grief. He thought he got grief, but he didn't mm-hmm. really get it until his wife died. And so I wonder if you feel like it's easier to talk about hard things when it's something that you've experienced yourself or, um, or if it doesn't really, or if you don't really feel that, because I, I hear you talking about 
loneliness so much on the show. And I think, but Anna doesn't really know a lot about it in the way Mm -hmm. that her listeners are talking to her about it. So what's that experience like for you? That's really interesting. I mean, I think, what do I know? There's a lot about pain that I don't know the depths of, you know, even, you know, I, I talk to people about grief a lot and people who've lost people very close to them. And I, I haven't had that experience. And, um, and the same with loneliness, the kind of loneliness where you can't, you know, there's not a thing to do to fix it. There's like, you know, you're, it's, it's a, it's a current fact of your life and there's not a, any platitude about like, join a volleyball team at the Y, you know, that doesn't, that's not it. That doesn't work. Um, so I'm not sure, like, I don't know that, but I see, um, I, it's more like what I, what I, what I sort of hear in those interviews is like, just the, the craving to just be heard, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think it's, um, it's not that I, I, I know it. It's that I want to hear them and I want to sort of pull out what they want to say about what their experience is. You know, there's, there's a lot that I have talked about on the show and, and in the book um, that I haven't personally dealt with the whole, the whole identity chapter. I was sort of circling around that question of like, there are many, most ways in my life I have not felt marginalized in any space that I walk in. I have felt like I belong here. And that's a very uh, privileged position. Um, and so I struggled a lot with that chapter of just like, what am I, who am I to even try to, you know, um, grapple with this big thing? And in the end for that chapter, um, I'll talk about that specifically because I think it gets to the question. It's in the end, it's like, um, if I'm saying I'm writing a book about hard things, um, I didn't want to just write a book about the stuff that I really knew intimately and, and, and make it um, and center myself. I wanted to also explore when you're in a conversation about a hard thing and you can't intuit what the person is going through, you know, what is it like then where you want to be able to say, I know how you feel to meet them there. And you can't like, then what do you say? You say, I am so sorry that this is happening to you or, you know, tell me more about, you know, tell me more about your family history. Tell me about, you know, what your experience is in this workplace, you know, that sort of thing. Um, because there are many circumstances where I can't and, and, and um, I can't intuit and relate. What do you think is the difference between what you do in those moments and what maybe a therapist would do in those moments because we can't fix it either. Yeah. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that because I, you know, I, I come up against that in, in interviews and um, in interviews and also in the work of this book, it's like, you know, I, every person I talk to, I'm like, can you, why are you talking to me? You know, like, like you're, I, I am not here to like, to, to serve you. You know, I'm here to, I'm a journalist. I'm chronicling something that you're telling me. I'm collecting your story to share with others. And I, I, I'm very clear with people I interview um, that that's my role, you know? Um, And I think sometimes there's a little, you know, when, when someone is confiding a story or telling you a story, there's a, there, you can get into sort of spaces where they are wanting to lean on you for help in ways that I can't give. But um, it's, you know, and when I ask the question, like, why are you talking to me? It's, it often comes back exactly to the very simple answer of like, this is something that I have been through and struggled with and felt alone in, and I want to share it. So other, anyone else who is in that position will know that it's not something they alone have faced. Yeah. It's almost like you're their witness Mm -hmm. that they want to witness. Yeah. Um, And I say that in, you know, like a compassionate witness um, to give voice to something that they're holding inside. I think that's, that's the magic of your book and that's the magic of your podcast. Mm. Um, One of the things that, that I love about, about the book is you do bring yourself into it when there is a personal experience that you've had. 
And I love how you start the sex chapter. <laughs> and I think a lot about, um, about how we talk about sex. Yeah. And you tell this story about you've, you know, you're married to Arthur now, you've just had your first child and your OB brings up the topic of sex and you're both mortified and relieved yeah. because you want to talk about it, but you're also really embarrassed to talk yeah. about it. Yeah. And it's interesting because here you're at a doctor whose job it is to educate you about your sexual health. And yet sometimes we can't get ourselves to even talk about it there. Why, why do you think it's so hard to talk about that? Well, I mean, I felt I, the particular shame I felt was like, at that point, I was maybe 36, almost 37. And I I made a joke about like wanting to get my long acting birth control. I had a an arm an arm implant, wanted to get it out because we wanted talking about having a second kid. And then I made a joke like, not that it's been particularly needed lately, you know, ha 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 ha. <laughs> everyone knows that's the deal after you have a baby. And the doctor, a man, a, a male OBGYN, he sort of paused and was like, well, let's talk about that. Um, which, Did he know, by the way, that you were like the host of well, Sex and Money? He had indicated just before this that he knew. So then I had to be like, oh, Lord, Anna, you've got to like keep eye contact with him to show him that you can handle this, you know? So, and he said, well, let's talk about that. And he, he was like, you know, what's the deal? And, and, you know, I was like, well, it's different, you know, finding time. And also the baby was in the bedroom for the whole first year and all these things. And, and then he was like, well, you know, sometimes you can, you can think about scheduling. I know that sounds very like clinical, but it can be a way to create an expectation of closeness. You can, you can also like open up the conversation that sex can look a lot of different ways. It doesn't always have to be, you know, uh, that you are both finishing in a very spectacular fashion. You also, you could just be holding each other. And, and it just sort of gave me like, I don't know, like I was embarrassed in particular, I think because I felt like such a cliche, like, like, it's so strange with sex. Like you, you don't want to be too far out of the norm. And you also don't want to be like a married couple cliche, you know, like of, of, you know, so, and, and then I went home and I said to, to Arthur, like, here's, here's some things that we talked about. And, and the reason the doctor sort of led up to in the, appointment. He said, I just want you to sort of think about this and maybe start having these conversations because if you do start trying for to get pregnant a second time, to go from sort of like less regular or rare sex to like, we want to get pregnant sex can just be a lot of pressure. And I thought that was just so loving of him to just be like, here's a way to just set yourselves up to not like have a really tough, miserable, emotionally draining process as you, you know, if you, as you set out to get pregnant again. And it gave Arthur and me sort of a language of like, what's going on with you? What's going on with you? What do you want? You know? And I could say, oh, can you just like hold me? Like, just, just like a little bit more ease on this, these very sort of intimate everyday ways we related to each other. I love that your OB did that because so many times I'll see couples in couples therapy and they have never really talked about sex with mm -hmm. each other. And no one has given them the language or given them a little bit of a roadmap like your OB did. Um, and so I think that's so important to, to have those roadmaps. And, yeah. and I was thinking about when you talk about death in the book and roadmaps, you, you're talk, you, you say that you know, there used to be a way that people would have um, sort of a ritual in place to, to manage, you know, however, however we communicate around death. And it would be like people come over and they leave food and, and all of those rituals that happen around death. And I sort of saw it differently. I thought, isn't that, isn't that kind of avoiding talking about it? That mm -hmm. I think we used to have the ritual so that we wouldn't really have to talk about it. Mm -hmm. But now we do talk about it and there's this great story in the book where you're, first of all, you're talking to Ann Simpson, who is, I would say, I don't know if I'm overreaching by saying she's responsible for your marriage with Arthur, but she's, she's certainly a, she can take a large big player credit. in it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, 
And, and then, and, and you find out that she's ill and you have this really open, beautiful conversation with her that's in the book. And then you talk to her daughter, Shelly, Mm -hmm. and her daughter pivots. She goes, you know, you start talking to her about her mother's illness and death, and she just doesn't want to do that. And so she starts talking about a friend's illness Mm -hmm. and death. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what you do in those situations as a therapist. I'm all over that. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Like I'm all over the pivot. Um, I want to know, you know, sort of what happened there and and where did you go and why is this hard to talk about? Um, Tell me about your experience when that happens. Oh, um, well, I'll I'll sort of give you sort of background before and after that moment. So Anne Simpson, she's the wife of Al Simpson. If you haven't heard the episode of of my show, uh, Arthur and I did have like a total rupture breakup. And through a weird series of events, he ended up asking former Wyoming Senator Alan Simpson to call me on his behalf. And uh, Al Simpson called and his wife of nearly 60 years was kind of in the background. I did not know either of them. And Anne was sort of shouting in the background. And I said, well, Al, what does Anne think I should do? And she gets on the phone. And um, it's a wild story. But long story short, they became some of our closest friends when they were in their mid 80s. Um, and I... I love Ann Simpson. I think she's a, an incredible woman. Her, A quote from her is at the very beginning of my book, um, openness creates openness. Like she is a woman who holds herself with such pride and dignity and also is not afraid to tell you what she's been through and tell you what her family has gone through. And she told me about the couples counseling that she and Al had to go through, through their church and all the ways that they have learned how to grow together as a couple. And I just love her tremendously. And um, when when I interviewed her about, you know, when you become so close to someone in their mid 80s, for me, like at the in the back of my head was like, I don't want to lose this. And what do I need to say to make sure she knows how meaningful this relationship is to me, how much I love her, like in a way that was like, I just I just was so anxious about losing her. And of course, there's no not losing her, you know, at some point she will die. I will die. We all will die. Um, so we talked about that and I interviewed her for the book and then I talked to her adult daughter and I said, I just had this incredible conversation with your mom. And she said, (laughs) she was like, I don't like, I can't talk about my parents dying. And, and then she told me about this funeral and, and we were sitting at lunch over salads. So I didn't say, what's going on there, you know, in the moment. But what's been really cool is in the writing of the book and sharing the pages with the people who are in my life, you know, before the book has come out, it's become this other, the conversation has continued. You know, I have kept talking with Sue about what it's like as her parents are declining. And it's, it wasn't, that's, that's not where it ended. You know, us talking about it. She's talked about it with her family. We've talked about it since the book came out. Um, and it's, you sort of see how once you sort of open this conversation, you know, um, it's allowed everybody to kind of be like this, this, at some point they will die and, and I love them so much and I will miss them so much, you know, and that's sort of where it is now. Um, but yeah, in that moment of her salads, she didn't want to talk about it. (laughs) Did it make you think at all about your own family and what it would be like to lose your own parents? Oh, yeah. I think that that's like, I think that's probably why the the like worry about losing my friends in their 80s was so acute because it was like my first really having to grapple with the passage of time and what happens to people you love with the passage of time. And so I saw, I had this impulse to like, I, if, if I can talk about it with Anne, I can stop it from feeling so scary, which is not true. You know, <laughs> I, mm. I, I can, I mean, maybe it doesn't feel as scary now, but it's somehow, you know, I, I, I just wanted it not to be so, you know? Um, and I think in talking about it, um, I know now that there's no doubt that she knows how much I love her, how much she's impacted my life and how for the rest of my days, I will be grateful for our friendship. One of the beautiful things that you write about family 
in the book is you say that family relationships are the longest of our lives, but also the most resistant to change. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then you tell this great story about, um, I think their names are Pam and George in the book. Um, because sometimes they do change and sometimes we change mm -hmm. when we least expect it. Can you talk a little bit about Pam and George? I just love Pam and George. Um, uh, since this is a Bay Area audience, primarily Pam is based in San Francisco. She's a life coach. Her name is Pam Daglian. And I originally found her because I was kind of looking for, I wanted to hear stories about um, really, uh, really big political differences in a family and to know success stories and not success stories of how they had talked about it. And Pam said, oh, let me tell you about my relationship with George, who's my stepfather. And she, her mother had gotten together with George um, after it was just Pam and her mom. Um, and, and Pam was almost like adolescent when they got together. So kind of immediately didn't like George because he was coming in on, on her relationship with her mom. And then her mom started going to George's church she felt like her mom was changing to be more aligned with George. So always their whole relationship tension. And then Pam left the house. She became a kind of progressive activist in college, settled out in the Bay area and just kind of had that, like, you know, I'm very different from my mom and my stepdad who live in upper Michigan. Um, George is a conservative Baptist. He voted for Trump. Um, and in 2016, during the, Trump campaign during the 2016 campaign, the Clinton Trump campaign, uh, Pam's mother moved into an assisted living facility because she developed dementia. So all of a sudden, Pam was visiting home without her mother being in actually the house, and it was Pam and George by themselves. And she was very nervous about this. Um, and they couldn't escape politics because politics was everywhere, including there was a Trump rally in town once when Pam was visiting. Um, but she did notice first that George would turn off Fox News when she was in the house, which she knew was something that he kind of kept on all the time. So she noticed him making a gesture. And then they, at one point, were sitting down and watching a presidential debate. And Pam told me she said there was like 30 minutes of silence. And then they did both looked at each other and giggled because they realized how nervous they were sitting next to each other while they watched. And then George actually turned to Pam and said, look, I want you to know that my, my relationship with you right now is more important than politics. And she said it back to him. She said, I, okay, like we're going to protect this relationship and we're not going to fight about politics. And once they sort of set up that expectation for how they were going to talk and relate to one another, it actually enabled them to talk about politics. Like they could be sort of curious about each other's differences. Um, and, and kind of like openly disagree, you know, um, but it wasn't going to be a thing. Um, they, they just kind of kept going back to that they needed each other right now. They were both grieving the loss of this woman that they loved. Um, and they, it really enabled them to have a relationship for the first time and that they'd been in each other's lives. And they continue to have a relationship. Uh, Pam's mother passed away uh, last summer during COVID. Um, but it's been really fun. And that's another instance. I just talked to George uh, last week and I talked to Pam last week and George, you know, was very excited to have the book and asked for a signed copy. And, you know, they just, they figured out how to allow space for their differences inside their family relationship. I'm wondering how your family feels about everything that you reveal, um, whether it's on the show, but mostly in your book, which is much more personal. Mm -hmm. And by family, I mean, how does Arthur feel about it? Um, <laughs> how do your parents and, and your many sisters feel about it? What, what has it been like to put this book out there for you? I mean, it's been one of the coolest things about it. I mean, with Arthur, I mean, with everyone in my life, I shared pages as I was working on it, um, which was a whole growth process in itself to say like, you know, some, Arthur's like, what happened? And I'm like, you don't remember this, you know? And he, well, that, and he, that's what I'm so curious about that because I, I'm, when I was asking what they thought about it, yeah. did they have a different perspective on, you know, your telling of these stories? Well, there's a difference between Arthur and my family of origin. Um, like with Arthur, he kind of took the position of like, look, 
like you're you're he would look at it he would say oh whoa you're really talking about how you thought i was hot and like lustful for me i'm like yep is that okay he's like well that's okay <laughs> you know like he was just sort of like it's if it's true it's fine like it's fine it's and and was very supportive and sort of was also a very helpful editor through the whole process, which I thank him very much for. With my family of origin, it was more complicated because part of what I write about in my family chapter is um, in my family, I have five sisters, as I said, uh, two, my two older sisters are from my dad's first marriage. And so they're my half sisters, but we always called them sisters. Um, you know, that's just the language I used growing up. And part of what I write about is like, um, what it's been like as a child growing into an adult to really realize like, oh, these people in my family have had really different experiences of family in our family. You know, um, I didn't have my parents split up. You know, my my mom, before she was my mom, she was my older sister's stepmom kind of suddenly because my parents got together quickly and married and it's kind of in the late 70s when everybody was just like we don't know how to get divorced and remarried it just all happened really fast and and so that was like you know that's sort of the message of that section of the book is when you you know when you're kind of like having a um a difficulty sort of understanding maybe a family member's narrative of what their relationship is to another family member or to just kind of lean into like, wait, can you tell me what, what that was like for you? Can you tell me that story again? Like, what was it like? Um, because again, it's just this very easy way to be reminded that all of our families are made up of individuals who have very particular points of view and experiences. And also for me, like the this first times I heard these family stories about, you know, my parents getting together and marrying and, you know, my older sisters, they're always part of my life. But you hear a child's version when you're hearing these family stories. You're not hearing what was hard and messy and difficult. Um, and so I that started I really started having those conversations when I got divorced with my dad, with my mom, talked to my sisters about their experience being kids of divorce Um and yeah, so I think that certainly if they were each writing books, they would be very different narratives. Um, and that's kind of the point of what I try to explore. Like that's all happening all at once in this one thing that we call family, all of these different versions of what our relationships are to one another. Yeah, I find that so interesting because you know, the child's version for you was, this is so exciting. Look at this wedding. And for them, it was like, wait a minute, we'll, we'll, these, you know, they're getting a whole new family and maybe yeah. they don't want that. And yeah. Yeah. Um, does your family ever sort of tease you for being known very publicly as this expert communicator? Oh yeah. Um, and maybe <laughs> when I there fall are times short, when you might have difficulty. They tell right? me. <laughs> Yes. Do they? Does that happen? Yeah. I mean, it's sort of, sometimes it's spoken and it's also unspoken, you know, and I, and I think it's fair, you know, as you know, it is, um, it's different having hard conversations at work for me when I'm in control and I'm, you know, able to edit afterwards. And I, I don't, it's, the stakes are so different when you're talking to somebody you're not related to or don't love. Um, I get much more, yes emotional and uh, reactive and defensive and the whole much broader range of reactions when I'm having hard conversations in real life. Um, so, yeah. So I, you just have to own it. You have to be like, yep. Yeah. I, I'm really trying to be my best Anna Sale self, but like, <laughs> she's not here right now. <laughs> she, she's, she's having a hard time busting through. Yeah. Right. Right. We're going to get to um, we're going to get to audience questions in just a minute. I have one last question for you because I, I love the end of the book. I was so moved. I cried both times that I read it at the end. Um, and it's where you you go back and you interview your first husband. And this whole book is about the power of having hard conversations. And what happens there is that you found that having that conversation didn't really add anything to mm -hmm. your understanding of what had happened between the two of you, that nothing you said really moved the story forward in any way. Um, and 
it really spoke about the limitations that sometimes the conversation teaches you that there really isn't anything more to talk about. Yeah. And, and sort of the limitations of that. Yeah. Um, what was it like for you to go back and, you know, it's one thing to live the experiences and it's another thing to write about them many years later. So there was this sort of closure, I think, in, in talking to him at the end of the book, but for the reader, but what was it like for you to write about these experiences that happened a while ago? Did you see them differently? Yeah. I mean, I would love to talk with you since this is something we have both done. Um, just like what it's like. I, I found, um, I like as a narrative, as a journalist, when I sat down who with my ex-husband and he graciously agreed to do this and, and let me ask him questions about the end of our marriage years later. Um, I, I found the interview sort of unsatisfying. Like that's, that was the first feeling I had afterwards. Like I didn't learn anything new. Like I thought, and that's why I sort of like pursued it. I was, I, I wanted to really hold myself accountable for like, what did I miss? What did I not hear from him at the time that might've made, I don't know, just the divorcing is, Coming, it's just always so messy because you're trying to fix it until all of a sudden you accept that you're not going to fix it. Um, and that is what the conversation ended up being was like, um, we got to sort of compare notes about our memories and, you know, they were very similar to how I had remembered them before we talked. And I got to ask him, you know, what do you say now when you're meeting people who never knew me, um, who mm. never, you know, like, what do you say when people say like, Oh, what happened there? Like, um, and he said, well, I just, I just say like, we, we really worked and it, it, I don't have the exact quote on the tip of my tongue, but it was something like, you know, you, you knew what you wanted when you wanted what we had. And I, it, I changed what I wanted and it, and it was just this beautiful, like, yep that's, that's what happened to us. And, and I wanted in that interview to sort of understand what more we could have talked about. And then I realized like, oh, we had, we did what we were supposed to do. We talked and talked and we were sad while we talked and we felt frustrated that we couldn't come to a resolution and we disagreed. And then we realized there was nothing more to talk about we realized that we had had enough hard conversations to have to, to, to have learned the information that we needed, which was our marriage didn't make sense anymore. And I think that's really critical for going into a hard conversation. As you said, like we, we avoid these conversations because we don't want to face what we might be forced to face, you know? Um, right. Sometimes the hard conversations are the end of the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know if most people have this way of thinking, but I, for so long, part of another really painful part of my divorce was I felt failure. I felt like I ought to have been able to use conversation to not end up in that place. And, um, I don't think that anymore. I think that we used conversation to realize what we needed to do. Was it having this conversation with him that made you feel differently about it? Or had you come to that conclusion before then? I mean, it's complicated because um, by that time when I was interviewing him, I had met Arthur, I had had my first baby. So I wasn't longing for this other version of my life. I was very much in a different place. Um, but I wondered, I was sort of like asking these questions on behalf of my 30 year old self mm -hmm. who um, who, who had a hard time integrating how I could tell myself, you are someone who works hard and, and on relationships, who believes in family, who keeps your commitments, um, and then to have a marriage fall apart. Um, and so I think I was sort of wanting to just understand a little bit more about, had I missed something? But in fact, I hadn't, like, mm -hmm. I hadn't missed anything. Yeah. And, and, and that was both sort of sad and liberating. Yeah. I, I love the end of the book. Thank you. Um, I want to get to the audience questions because we have a bunch 
And the first question is, any advice for how to listen when someone is trying to talk to you about the hard things? And then someone commented to this, defensiveness is so often an issue. How can we navigate that dance? Mm. So it, it depends. I mean, if it, the hardest, I, I think, when someone is trying to talk to you about a hard thing and it's directed at you or something that you have done, you know, they are saying, this is something you're doing that's causing me upset, pain, et cetera. Um, you know, it's very easy to think like, well, your version of facts are not right. Uh, I, you know, did this for these reasons and I'm going to tell you why. Um, I really try and don't always succeed, but I think the most, when you're in a hard conversation, it's, I really try to pay attention to the pacing. Like, so it's just like such a simple thing, the pacing of how quickly I'm responding, um, how I'm listening. Uh, and, and, because once you pay attention to the pacing and try to keep it slow, you there's more space to be curious, to make sure you're hearing what this person is trying to communicate to you. Um, and, you know, there's another way that some listening is challenging when someone is bringing you hard information. And that is if it's something that you can't fix or it's something that you're not in a place that is, is, you're healthy for you to really listen to. Maybe it's something that's very painful or, or bringing up traumatic things for you, for you. Like, and in some, in cases like that, I think it's perfectly okay to say like, you know, I, I'm realizing like I'm having a hard time having this conversation right now. Like it's, it's bringing up, it's, it's either like, I'm not, this isn't a, today's not a good day to, for me to have this conversation. Um, or to just kind of like ask for a little more space or like, I wish I could, I wish I could, I wish I could tell you how to make this better, but I can't. Um, and, and I think that's, again, the, the thing that's so hard is like, but also, as you said, like liberating, when you realize your role in a hard conversation isn't to fix these hard things, it's to sort of help people recognize like, this is, this is what's hard about death that loss is final. That's what we're grieving. This person is not coming back. And also that that's going to happen for each of us. There's no fixing that. That's what is hard, but that's not your role. You don't have to fix that in the hard conversation, for example. Yeah. I think that those conversations are maybe easier to navigate than the ones that I think they're referring also to conversations where the conversation is about you. Yes. <laughs> right. Because yeah. um, they were talking about defensiveness. And, and, you know, I, I have lots of thoughts about that as a therapist, but I, but I, I, I'm really curious because I think you, you're so wise um, in terms of how you talk about these conversations. Um, do you have any advice for this person about what happens when someone's bringing up something about something going on between the two of you yeah. and you're feeling defensive? I think, you know, to, again, to sort of turn your shoulders towards the person try to hear them. And then if you do notice yourself becoming defensive or, or hearing, you know, collecting responses that you want to make sure that you say out very quickly, like to say, just to say like, wow, I'm, this is the reaction I'm having to this. Um, I, this is, this is hard for me to hear. Like just, even just kind of saying that instead of just kind of um, battling over facts or whose version is more correct to share like, Oh, now this is the experience I'm having in this conversation. Like, I, I hear what you're saying here. This is making me feel like you're not seeing X, Y, and Z. Let's talk about that. Um, and uh, yeah, to just narrate, a, narrate out loud to the extent that you can when you are feeling defensive instead of just being defensive. Right. Just sort of, um, I think it's important because people will just act defensively without saying here's what's going on for me. And I'm not able to take this in right now. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I act offensively. Before I yeah. yeah. <laughs> I really tried to practice this practice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that is, that is sort of the bulk of what happens in, in couples therapy is, you know, learning how to listen. And it's, it's such a skill and it's so important for all of our relationships to really understand what it means to listen to another person and to be present with them, even as you're getting activated in different mm -hmm. ways. Mm -hmm. um, there's a question here. There's so many good questions. So I'm kind of a little bit rushing through, but 
Um, this one says, it's directed at me, but I want to direct it toward you, Anna. It says, you mentioned earlier in the conversation about how even your clients can't talk to you about money. A question for you both. In all of your work, have you ever learned why money is impossible to talk about, even in the safest of spaces? And I would just start that, and then I'm going to hand it to you, Anna. Mm -hmm. um, by saying that money represents so many things. It represents success or failure or worth or lack of worth or shame um, or possibility or baggage or whatever it, it, it says about you and who you are as a person. Um, and so I think that, you know, even when you think, and it represents love sometimes when, you know, you think mm -hmm. about like siblings fighting over how the parents will maybe give a certain amount of money to one of the siblings who is struggling more and the other sibling who doesn't need the money at all is really upset about this, mm -hmm. even though it makes sense that the parents are doing that, but it feels to the other sibling, like, well, you, why are you giving more love to that sibling? Yeah. Um, so I think that, I think that there's something about what it says about, not only what we do, but an, an ambition and power and control and all of that, but who we are. Yeah. Um, but I'd be curious to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah. I mean, I would agree with everything you just said. Um, I have a line in the book from a financial therapist named Amanda Clayman, and, and she just says like, money is a symbol and a tool. It's these two things. And we don't always differentiate how we're talking about it. Um, and I would just add to what you said, uh, we don't have a lot of practice with money. Like who in your life do you talk concretely about money with? Maybe your accountant, your partner, maybe your parents, maybe your siblings, um, probably not coworkers really explicitly. Um, uh, and, and, and I think once you get out of the realm of the very private, intimate financial conversations where you're making choices together, I think another impulse we have is to wanna to flatten differences because we have a lot of feelings about where we are situated compared to others. And so we want to just sort of skip over that stuff because we don't want to bring it up, you know? Um, but This reminds me of um, how you and Arthur had to deal with the fact that you make more money than he does. Yeah. And yet he works, in, in your view at least, he works... I wouldn't say necessarily harder, but more hours or different, yeah. you know, he has his responsibilities take up more time Yeah, and he makes less money than you do. And there's yeah. something so uncomfortable about that, even inside a couple. Yeah. Did you find that difficult to deal with between the two of you? Well, it's funny. I've been asked about that sentence in the book, like, whoa, was he okay with that? And I was like, yeah, we, I don't know. It's just like a fact. <laughs> always made more money than him but I think but it's it not is, just a fact well I know it's not I it and I think it's a little complicated too that it comes out you know it can show up in things like when we're having to ne negotiate like who if we both have work we need to do on a weekend and we both have the two kids we need to take care of like how do we make time for each other and and is there like a like a like a sub conversation to the one we're actually having about whose work has more value, you know? Um, and so all of that stuff, like, I just, you know, it's, I, I think um, that in our relationship now, it's more, my job is different than his in that, like, he has many more people who have demands on his time. So he has more constituencies that he's serving. So, um, you know, I don't pull the like, well, I need to do this because you know who, how much I earn. Like, so I don't, I, but I, I think that that if we weren't sort of like just used to that fact, I think it could show up in a lot of, um, you know, it could show up in resentments that could develop when you're, when you're battling over time and work and how to get it done. Yeah, absolutely. We have time for just one more question. And here's the question says, Lori and Anna, have you ever been gutted by any of the hard topics people discuss with you? Of course. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, I've been gutted in so many different ways. Like sometimes just the experience of having a remote encounter with someone where you just can't kind of like part with them in a human way, especially like in this last year where you just like close the Zoom window. That's gutting in a certain way. Um, uh, and, and, you know, it's, 
I, I have, you, you have the inclination to want to, to fix, to offer a solution. Um, and I think, you know, especially when you're talking to someone who you have a, re, you know, a real fondness for, and you hear what they're struggling with, and you want to be able to tell them the thing like, oh, I wonder if this would help, you know, and you, you can't do that. Most of the time, um, in some of the hard stuff that I talk about on the show, there's not a thing to do that will alleviate it. Um, I think your show does that, though, because, mm -hmm. you know, when, when I see couples, I remember I once saw this couple who said, um, she said to her husband, you know what three words mean the most to me? And he said, I love you. And she said, no, I understand you. Mm -hmm. And I think that's yeah. what your book and your podcast do for people is it helps us to feel understood. So I want to end this with, it's a tradition here to ask the following question of all of the speakers. That would be you, Anna. What is your 60 second idea to change the world? I mean, I think it's on that very theme. Like, you know, if you carry with you this, this very, elemental truth, which is I want to be seen and understood. And I know everyone I encounter wants to be seen and understood. Um, it's not going to make very real differences go away, very real differences in values, you know, choices. Uh, it's, but if you, if you go into the spirit of any encounter with that idea of like, how can I see this person and try to be seen? Um, I really do feel, particularly now, that if more of us move through the world with that spirit, um, things would be better than they are right now. Things yes. are not good in our ability to uh, feel trust, to feel uh, relationship with our fellow neighbors, citizens, community members, Americans, and um, that is one small way by just really trying to be intentional about how you move through the world and how you um, have these micro encounters with everyone. Um, I think that would change the world. It wouldn't fix the world, but it would change it for the better. And I think we're, we're, we're starting to do that. We're starting. Just, just the very beginning. Yeah. Um, well, Anna, I want to thank you for being so open with us tonight. I asked you a lot of really personal questions <laughs> and I think it's one thing to write about them and it's another thing to sit there in front of an audience and talk about them. So I want to thank I you I only for could doing see that. you in the Zoom and you are very easy to share with and confide in. So. <laughs> well, thank you. Sitting here with my earbuds. I don't normally do that in therapy, have the earbuds. Um, and I want to thank everybody for joining Info Forum at the Commonwealth Club. Don't forget, everybody, I'm going to hold it up one more time because I love the beautiful cover and you all have to read it. Uh, don't forget to get a copy of Anna's book. I hope it's on the, there we go. Um, it's called Let's Talk About Hard Things. And as always, keep listening to her podcast, Death, Sex, and Money. And if you would like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming like tonight available, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. I'm Lori Gottlieb, and thank you all for being here, and have a great night. You've been listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org.